0: Wow, it's Lent. For those of you who have been here and, and coming regularly, um, we've been trying to make a bigger liturgical deal out of Lent. Trying to really see if we can enter into the season, I believe as it was originally intended, which is not as a negative time. Those of you who grew up in a, in a liturgical church... Roman Catholic or Episcopal or maybe High Methodist or Lutheran. Um, I don't know about your churches, but in our church, it was a time where we were giving up something that we really loved, some pleasure that we loved, uh, as penance, you know, for all the things that we had done. And it was, so it was kind of a negative experience. And what we're trying to do is turn that around and say, let's make it a positive experience. Instead of giving up something because of a penance, in, in, in some, some way making amends for our sins, We are stripping away anything that would distract us or obscure the face of our God in our given moments of every single day. And doing it in a conscious way, doing it with awareness that this is what we're doing. We're getting rid systematically of all the stuff that is constantly spinning in our heads and constantly keeping us from the moment and from the truth that resides in every moment which is that our God is present. Our God precedes us wherever we go. And our God is good. And we were talking about that conversation, that safe conversation. How in the world are we ever going to know that it's safe? How in the world are we ever going to know that our God is not judging us, but trying to guide us if we can't clear the decks a bit and just be present to the moment? This is what we're trying to do for Lent. To find a way to practice this as a lead up to the new life that Easter represents for us. And I hope, I know some of you, because I've talked to some of you, you're doing it. You know, two Sundays ago, on the first Sunday of Lent, we uh, lit candles here as the, uh, the symbol of our intent to be alert, to be present. And it was moving off of the, uh, the parable of the ten bridegrooms, the five foolish and five wise. <coughs> and the foolish ones didn't have any oil in their lamps. So that was our signal of intent, to keep oil in our lamps, to keep moving through, to find the balance between alertness and immersion and presence And then also the abstract thought that we need to have so that we can plan, so that we can learn from our mistakes, so we can anticipate the future. But a balance between the two so that we're not falling down on one side or another, but moving through life in that alert way, anticipating the future, but still aware, hyper aware of all the people who are traveling with us every single day. And then last Sunday... The the name of the uh, message was Prayer Muscles. And we were talking about doing this with the continuous prayer that talks about. And is continuous prayer even possible? How does that work? And we said, yeah, continuous prayer is possible if it's understood as nonverbal awareness. As being aware of something without having to think about it. Put that thought in words or to talk about it. But a constant awareness through the day. Even when we're doing other things. You're at work. But you're still aware that there's a presence. You're aware of the people around you. You're aware of your connection to them. And it changes the fabric of everything that we do. And so this morning, on this third Sunday, I'm calling it Overturning Tables. What this is alluding to is Jesus cleansing the temple, of course, which is going to happen on Fig Monday, which is the, the Monday right before Easter. It's the... Uh, the scripture that we typically read liturgically there. But what was Jesus doing there? He was clearing out everything that was distracting the people from their God in the temple at the time. And this is a call to us to find a way to overturn the the tables in our own temple, in our minds, to challenge the established institutionalized ways of doing things, to challenge the theology that we believe, to see if there is something beyond it, to see if it has calcified, to see if it has set us in stone so that we're no longer aware of and amenable to the movement of the Spirit through us. We can't do this until we question what we think we know, to see if it's really true or to see if we've just received it institutionally and have been running with it so long that we've forgotten basically why we're running with it anymore. And to see if there is something that Jesus is pointing toward that brings a freshness, that brings that sense of newness and reality. There's a there's a progression here, right? From looking at the balance, looking at the continuous prayer, and now to actively and consciously challenge the things that we think we know so that we're constantly clearing more and more of the debris, more of the obstacles, more of the walls out of the way so we can see what's really in front of us. I had a friend that I met in England through the internet uh, as I was uh, researching my first message as it's going to be ordained, which will be 15 years now in July. Can you believe it? Getting old. And... uh, he was a, a Jew, but he was a Jewish follower of Jesus and, uh, and looked at Jesus from a first century Aramaic point of view, which I was just learning to do, so that's kind of how I found him in doing this research. But at one point, he sent me what he called his own personal theology. And as soon as you think of a personal theology, I don't know about you, but the way I was raised, that sent a shock through the system. Personal theology? What in the heck are you talking about? You, know, you can't have a personal theology the church owns theology it belongs to the church the church is the one that decides so it was as if you know growing up catholic to me that god wrote the theology someplace and the church discovered it and was disseminating it to us and it was provably right you know this this perfect theology out there and and, and that's how we always looked at it as this monolithic one thing in the, from the one true church And here's this Jew in England telling me that he has a personal theology. And so I really had to sit back. Of course, I read it. And there are things I thought seemed okay and other things that seemed pretty messy to me and screwy, but the details of his personal theology weren't that important to me. What struck me was what that personal theology allowed him to do. He had some developmental disorders and he was able to work through those. He was able to see... A pattern in those disorders, in life circumstances that were difficult. He was able to see meaning and purpose in his life because of what he had personally come to believe. And because it was his personal conviction, he lived it to a depth that I was unaccustomed to. Just living in church, reacting to, to church teachings, and trying to find my way through this, I saw in him something that, that was, it was different. And so I had to consider this notion of a personal theology. I uh, was living up at Sarah Retreat for a while, it seemed like, uh, always going up there trying to get clear and trying to get you know, to a, a deeper place uh, back 25 years ago. And the Franciscans ran and still do run Sarah Retreat out in Malibu. And there was one Franciscan out there that uh, I came to know pretty well, and his name was Emery Chang, he was a Chinese national and he was this perfect balance between East and West and and was looking at religion, spirituality, and life from this different point of view that was just again sending shocks through my system. And I remember at one point in a in a in a general meeting he made the point that he thought that the devil was just a metaphor for the evil that we have inside of us or the evil that we practice in the world. And, of course, all my bells and whistles went off as a good evangelical at the time. And so I went to his office with my Bible afterwards, and I started to uh, explain to him why he was wrong. And uh, all he did was just big hand, put this big hand in my face and just stopped me. And he said, all I can tell you is what i have convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And of course, at the time, I thought that was a big cop-out. Now I realize it's really the only thing that one human being can say to another. What I'm telling you these Sunday mornings, or if we ever have a talk or in a question and answer, will be what I'm convinced of. That's all I can tell you. I'm convinced of these things. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not telling you what to believe. But hopefully what we can do is open up vistas. Open up curtains. See a little further. Become aware of some things that maybe you weren't aware of before. Like I wasn't aware of when I started coming up against these kinds of individuals. And then the study that I did brought so much more breadth and spectrum. And I had to consider the facts. Did I really know... Everything that I needed to know, did I have this one true theology that was handed to me by my church, either Catholic or Evangelical? And what I started to realize is that theology varies tremendously within Christianity. I put a quote there by Billy Graham right at the top of your of your handouts. There, sincere Christians can disagree about the details of Scripture in theology. Absolutely, Billy Graham says. But that's what I realized, that there was this vast difference in, in the way that the scripture was looked at, in the way that scripture was interpreted, and the theology that came from that within Christianity. And I started to realize, you know, I had to bring my whole mind and heart and being to this project, to this journey So that I could come up with a theology that was personal for me. Not that it would be different necessarily from the church, but that it was mine. Because anything that is just received, anything that we just approach institutionally, anything that is second-hand hearsay, is not going to touch us at the deepest levels where we need to be touched. And any theology that hasn't become personal is not going to change your life. It can't do it. It doesn't have that power until it is come right into who you are, come right into everything that you are. But what this requires is something that is really frightening, really scary. Do we really have permission to come up with our own personal theology? Do we really have permission to divert away from the church line? Can we do this? Can we do this safely? Can we do this without God having some sort of retribution on us? That was the first question that I had to answer. And it may be the question that you need to answer right now, too. Is this really kosher? Can we really do this? You know, do we have the permission to make our theology personal and deviate from church? And of course, the question becomes, well, which church? Because every church has a different theology, don't they? And that's the problem. And every church with their different theology says theirs is right and everybody else is wrong, for the most part. And so we're left holding the bag. We're left trying to figure out, okay, what do we do in all of this diversity? What do we do in terms of trying to figure out what we can bring down into our own understanding? And the theology that we have been taught, the theology we've been received, if you dial the clock back... Was decided primarily by seven ecumenical councils from the year 325 to the year 787. The First Council of Nicaea and the Second Council of Nicaea. About 460 years there between the two, where these councils of bishops, over 460 years, came up with all of the ideas, the concepts, the descriptions of God, the theology that we have received now as Western Christianity. Is that all right? Is it correct? Well, of course it's not correct. No theology can really describe God fully. It's not possible. But we're looking for something to describe enough that allows us then to take the first steps, to see that there is enough of a risk-free environment here to move forward and find out what is personally true. Was Jesus' theology personal? That should be the, um, the question that we want to answer. I want to read just a little bit from a, a chapter in, in The Fifth Way, my book, and see if we can dial this in, see if we can start to understand more and more about how we're supposed to approach theology, how we're supposed to approach challenging the institutions in our own mind. All theologies begin as personal theologies. Attempts to express an inexpressible experience of the infinite in a finite life. And any theology only becomes useful once it has become personal. Okay, there's a lot of words there. But what am I really saying? If you think about it, roll the clock back from any religion. And what happens? You get back usually to one person who had an intense spiritual experience face to face with God that changed them deeply from the inside out. And then they wanted to express it to another person. Guess what happened to me? And they tell you. They can't really express the experience. It's inexpressible. It was purely spiritual. So you put it in words, and you change it in the doing. But if you're true enough to the experience in expressing it, then others can re-experience it with you. And if those changes in life are positive, more and more people grow around that, and a religion is born. And then we have to decide how we're going to deal with the group, and what the rules, and how we're going to worship. That's the religion part. An experience of an inexpressible spiritual encounter, which leads to an expression of it, which is a theology, which leads to a practice in the group, which is a religion. This is the natural progression outward. But it all starts with a personal experience. It has to. And so here we are. When we come to a church then, for the first time, right? what is it the first thing that we experience from that church? It's not the experience itself. It's the expression of the experience. It's the practice of the experience. But if the theology and the religion are true to the experience, what it'll do is it'll draw us back in as we continue to show up, as we continue to practice the faith into the original experience. Now it's ours. Now we have a personal theology because we've experienced it ourselves. That is the kind of faith that can take us through the difficult times. That is the kind of faith, as Jesus said, that is built on the rock. So when the storms and the wind and the rain come, the house continues to stand. But until that happens, it's just hearsay. And sometimes the hearsay that we have been hearing ever since we were a kid becomes so established in our minds that we shut off, we close off, we calcify. And then nothing new can get in. And this is where clearing the decks has to happen. A a theologian does the same thing. It's the same process studies, looks at the scriptures, looks at all the church practice, looks at history, and comes to a conviction, becomes convinced of something, and teaches out of that conviction. But we have to do exactly the same thing. In essence, every single one of us has to be our own theologian. That doesn't mean we're going to wildly run outside of church theology and church practice, but it means we have to go through that same process of study, of practice, and experience so that we become convinced of something that we can tell another person. This is what I'm convinced of. Now you go become convinced of what you're convinced of. So, did Jesus do the same thing? Was Jesus' theology personal? Or did he just follow the Judaic line? If you really think about it, I have to make a distinction here. Jesus really didn't give us a theology. If you read the red letters of the New Testament, you don't find him giving us theological principles and abstract concepts about God. He didn't give us an orthodoxy. You heard that word before, orthodox? You know what it means? Literally, in Greek, it means straight or right thinking. You're thinking straight when you're orthodox, right? An ortho, just like an uh, orthopedic surgeon who's trying to make your limbs straight, same thing, you're trying to make your thinking straight. And so those seven ecumenical councils, they came up with all the right thinking and created an orthodox Christian faith, an expression of it, that then splintered and became all sorts of things. Jesus really didn't give us that. What Jesus gave us was an orthopraxy, not an orthodoxy. Orthopraxy, what's that? That's right practice or right action. He gave us a way of living life that was straight and true and would lead us unerringly to the Father if you were willing to let go of what you thought was your orthodoxy, because your orthodoxy could get in the way of your orthopraxy, what you think is going to get away in the way of you being able to practice and accept and experience a truth that comes from a direction that you're not expecting. And so in a very real way, it's not so much about the creed, it's about the deed, if you want to look at it from a poetic standpoint. It's not about codified belief, about intellectual understanding, but a way of living in the awareness of Father's presence. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. That being said, Jesus was trained as a Jew. Jesus was a good Jew. He kept to the 613 written laws, but he deviated from his elders. He deviated from the traditions of the church in great, in vast ways. He came into conflict with those elders over and over again because he was trying to emphasize something. He had taken all that Judaism was, brought it into himself. And in that 40 days in the wilderness, when he goes out and experiences to the point of exhaustion, to the point of near death, what it means to be a son of God, what it means for him to be God's son, He makes it personal. It becomes a conviction that is so deep that when he comes back to his tribe, when he comes back to his community, they recognize that he teaches with an authority that the other elders just don't have. That theology has become personal. It's become a deep conviction because he's lived it and he's experienced who his father is and he found out that the news is good. father is good. So, whether it's an orthodoxy or an orthopraxy, it means nothing if it remains institutional, if it remains out there, something that we've just received and accepted. We've got to make it as personal as Jesus does, again, convinced of. Then it will animate us, and what we do is going to come out of that conviction. And Jesus' orthodoxy, Jesus' orthopraxy, always points to Father. It never points to itself. Jesus always points to Father. never points to Himself, which is a huge understanding. Let me read a little bit more here. Theology is not an end in itself. It's a process of training the mind to accept a certain concept about God, to mentally assent to that concept. It's a way of clearing a path to belief, but belief is not an end in itself either. In the New Testament, the Aramaic word for believe is is etemen, and for faith, haimenuta. Both of these words contain all the meanings associated with our concepts of belief, faith, and trust, all present simultaneously in each Aramaic word. Whenever Jesus speaks of believing or having faith, what he's really driving at is trust, confidence, firmness, integrity between thought and action, living and choosing as if something were already true. Try substituting trust for faith or belief wherever you find those words in the New Testament and see how it deepens the message. In fact, etamen is related by root to the Hebrew word amen, which is also an affirmation of confidence and trust. Far from being an end in itself, belief is merely the first step in a journey to trust. Belief allows the mind to accept and assent. And when belief deepens, the mind allows the body to take action consistent with the belief. Belief that has become action is called faith. Remember, faith is, without works is dead from James. And when faith deepens through repeated experience of the trustworthiness of God, it becomes trust. The confidence that holds fast even when the circumstances of life seem to contradict the belief with which we started. Belief deepening to faith is the only means by which we can experience trust. And trust is where we need to get. And trust is the only means by which we can transform our lives from a base of fear to a base of love because only trust allows us to see beyond our circumstances and take the risk that our fear would normally abort. Once we arrive at trust, the mental stuff just doesn't matter anymore. It was all only vehicle after all. Our personal theology will come out of our personal experience of God, our trust. There is no other way to learn such a thing, because such a thing is not transferable between humans. We may find ourselves lined up with someone else's conceptions, but we all must arrive under our own steam. We have to move beyond the simple carrot and the stick approach, reward and punishment, that we normally take within church groups under church leadership. If we don't adhere to this particular theology, we're going to be punished. If we do, then we're going to be rewarded. That basic understanding is something that also has to be jettisoned. But it's frightening to do that if you've been treated, if you've been taught that way and raised that way. Because you're worried about the punishment, about the fear, right? We need to move beyond just an institutional received sort of thought and process to this personal conviction, to the trust, the unprovable trust that Jesus is trying to get us to move toward. Always trying to get us to move toward. But this always feels dangerous, doesn't it? To leave the security of the institution, to leave the security of everything that you have been taught and everything that you think you know. Jesus shows us exactly what this is like how it works. Take a look here at Matthew 21 starting at verse 23. And I'm sure he's got it up on the overheads, but it's also in your bulletins. This whole chapter 21 is dealing with the events that take place liturgically on Fig Monday, as it's called, which is the Monday right before Easter. And so it starts with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then it moves to his cleansing of the temple and then it moves to his withering of the fig tree and then it moves to right here. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the first thing we need to look at is these things. What are these things that they're talking about? All the things within chapter 21 riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, and being hailed as Messiah, as Savior. Then going into the temple and overturning all the tables there, taking down all of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrificial animals, the doves, and so on and so forth, and saying that this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves, questioning the very intent of the the temple system. And then he goes out and he sees a fig tree in the distance and he thinks he's hungry and he thinks it looks like it should have fruit and it doesn't and he withers the fig tree. Difficult sayings. But all of these things are what the Pharisees are talking about. Who gave you the authority? They're obsessed with authority. They're obsessed with the institutional church and the power that comes from that institution and so they want to know. But they're also trying to paint him into a corner because look what Jesus does. Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Ah, here we go. Now, this is a, Matthew's gospel is written to Jews, and so heaven is a euphemism for God. You didn't say God's name directly. So he's asking them, where did John's authority come from? From God or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves. Okay, here's the lawyers coming out, saying, if we say from heaven, from God, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. <laughs> and so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus turns the tables on them again. He turns it around. He knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to paint him into the same corner. But this is only Monday. He has to get through the week. There's a lot of things to do. He's not ready for a showdown yet. He's pushing back, right? But he also tells him a story. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. What is Jesus doing here? What is he talking about? See, what we have to do is we have to take the whole chapter as one unit of meaning or we're not going to get where he's going with this. It's all about the context. It's all about connecting the dots. It's so hard to understand why Jesus would curse a poor fig tree You know, he walks up to the fig tree. It's full of leaves. It looks really lush and verdant. He's hungry, but there's no fruit. And he curses the fig tree and it withers up. You can't understand what's happening there unless you connect it with immediately previously his cleansing of the temple where he said the same thing. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. From the outside, it's all white and beautiful and gilded, but the inside is just a den of thieves. The fig tree has always been since Old Testament times, a symbol for the nation of of Israel itself. And so the two things work together as a unit. It looks like it should nurture. It looks like it should preserve life on the outside, but inside it's barren. Inside there's nothing there. Jesus isn't so much cursing the fig tree, he's exposing it for the barren tree that it is, that it does not have the capability of nurturing life, of preserving life. And the temple system, what it has become is exactly the same. It no longer has the ability to nurture spiritual life, to take the people where they need to go, to show them the Father, to usher them into this experience where their theology becomes personal. And it animates them. And it brings them alive. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. They're all about the institution. They're all about tripping them up in some sort of verbal trap. They're all about preserving their power. But Jesus is trying to get across to them. You have the pedigree. You have the degrees. You have all of the ecclesiastical power here. In other words, you're saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, to God. And you're not doing the first thing that would bring the people to their father, to their God. And that yet, those that you disdain, those that stand outside the law, are responding, are coming. He's making this huge point. But it's one that we must not miss either. Because none of this is done in a vacuum. What Judaism had become, what the Pharisees had become, no longer even fulfilled the law. It no longer nourished the people. They were obsessed with all of this institution. But the way to the Father, if we're really going to get there, is to knock down those tables, to kill that tree. Because until we do that in our own spirits, in our own minds, we are stuck. We can't get past the legal understanding of this relationship. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to overturn those tables, kill that tree? What Jesus is saying, like those sons, it doesn't matter what we say we believe. It matters what we do, how we live. That's how you do the Father's will. But even further than that, it doesn't even matter what you do if you do it out of fear, if you do it out of promise of reward, because now you're no longer moving from the inside out. It's still just a fear-based compliance. That's when Jesus says, I never knew you, remember? Hey, we did all these things in your name, Lord. Yeah, but we didn't really have a relationship. I don't know you. This is what he's trying. What we say, what we believe, what we do can all be irrelevant if it's not informed and flowing out of a personal experience, a connection, a relationship with our God. Jesus said the kingdom is within. It's a transformation of heart. It's not something that comes from the outside. It's nothing that can be imparted to us. It is an experience with the living God that we have, if we're willing to clear the decks, that changes everything about what we do. And there is no transformation in our hearts until our theology, our belief, what we think we know, becomes personal conviction until we overturn the tables in our own established system, whatever that happens to be. How can we know? How can we know if our theology has become personal? How can we know if we've touched that kingdom within? To try to illustrate, I want to go a little bit into left field for a second. I do this a lot. (laughs) Yeah, you know, right? But I'm going to try to bring it around. So hang with me for a bit. I want to read a part of an article here that comes from a Canadian PhD candidate who was working with returning Canadian vets from Afghanistan and especially with their suicidal ideation and all the problems they were having. And he was noticing patterns as he was dealing with these vets returning from deployment, returning from the field of battle. And he writes this. And it's fascinating. Many veterans miss life on deployment. What? This does not mean that they are bloodthirsty killers, nor does it mean that they like being shot at. Rather, they miss the sense of collective purpose that comes with it. In his war memoir, Through Our Eyes, Jesse Odom states, the most devastating perpetual trauma I had to overcome was civilian transition. Think about that for a second. The most devastating perpetual trauma I had to overcome was civilian transition, transition back into civilian life. I know the changes I see in myself are not a result of the war in Iraq. Even though those memories are still there and traumatic, it goes much deeper than that. The changes are the result of a man who wishes he were at war. This same sentiment is also seen in a book titled On War by Sebastian Junger, where he reports an account of an army airborne platoon in the Karengo Valley of Afghanistan. And he writes, Collective defense can be so compelling... So addictive, in fact, that eventually it becomes the rationale for why the group exists in the first place. I think almost every man at Restrepo, the combat outpost, secretly hoped the enemy would make a serious try at overrunning the place before the deployment came to an end. It was everyone's worst nightmare, but also the thing they hoped for the most some ultimate demonstration of the bond and the fighting ability of the men. For sure there were guys who re-upped because something like that hadn't happened yet. After the men got back to Vincenza, I asked Bobby Wilson if he missed Restrepo at all. I'd take a helicopter there tomorrow, he said. And then leaning in a little softer, most of us would. He goes on to say, throughout history, men at war have come home to find themselves desperately missing what should have been the worst experience of their lives. They miss being in a world where everything is important and nothing is taken for granted. A world where everything is important, and nothing is taken for granted. They miss being in a world where human relations are entirely governed by whether you can trust the other person with your life. It's such a pure, clean standard that men can completely remake themselves in war. For these men, combat provides a heightened sense of meaning in collective action. In addition, they miss being in a world where everything mattered. After w- witnessing the profound tragedy of war, a veteran's sense of what matters in life may be uprooted. In the memoir, Unspoken Abandonment, Brian Wood writes the following lines regarding the conversations of his civilian co workers once he was back in the States, or back in Canada. I couldn't believe the kind of silly BS these people thought mattered in life. <laughs> couldn't believe I once thought these same things were important. You're used to doing things that mattered, and suddenly your life is simply digesting BS and consuming instead. As Viktor Frankl states in Man's Search for Meaning, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Civilian life often fails to provide combat veterans with a why after witnessing the profound tragedy of life in Afghanistan and experiencing a high degree of purpose-driven action, our way of life in the West can seem frivolous and dull. This is why we not only need programs for psychological traumas, such as PTSD, but for reintegration traumas and moral injuries as well. Imagine men and women in that situation. you know, In combat in the hierarchy, responsible for people's lives, doing what they're doing, and then coming home to stock shelves or sell shoes. Now, There's nothing wrong with stocking shelves or selling shoes. But where is the meaning? Where is the purpose when you're comparing it to what was going on just a few months before? How do you deal with that? Now, I've never been in the military, and many of you probably haven't either. But I think we've all experienced a little bit of what's going on here. At certain times in our lives, when circumstances got intense enough, when we were out someplace connected with people in a way that we normally don't do in everyday life, maybe it was a missions trip to a third world country where you really had to band together and do certain things where there were real dangers possibly as you were moving through the countryside, whatever happened. Maybe it was just a camping trip. You know, surviving outside in in the wild where you really had to know what you were doing and depend on each other in order to get there. Maybe it was just a weekend retreat with your church, but the circumstances became more intense and you felt something different. You felt a connection and a bond. Maybe it was your family going through a family member having cancer or some life-threatening disease where you all had to pull together and you had to do things in a way that you never had to before. Remember what America was like for about a month after the Twin Towers went down where there were flags hanging from the overpasses and for once, just in my lifetime, there was no more Republican or Democrat. There was just Americans and how good that felt for about a month because of the tragedy that we all experienced and then of course it goes away again. But I think we've all experienced to some degree or another what these veterans are talking about. Where life hands us such intense circumstances that it blows out all of the stuff. It strips life to its essentials. All that trivial BS, as the one soldier said, is suddenly gone. And you see life as it really is. You see the intensity and the preciousness of each connection and relationship in your life. And our mistake, then, is to think that we have to keep going back to the intense circumstances in order to experience that kind of sense of meaning and purpose and identity. That we need to somehow recreate those. And we do that, don't we? Ever known someone who always has chaos in their life? And if there isn't any chaos, they'll find a way to create it. They're keeping an intensity there that gives them a sense of mission, meaning, and purpose. What is codependency about? By keeping a sense of mission, meaning, and purpose. By keeping a a certain amount of chaos constantly in your life. Think of the churches that are growing the fastest right now and always have. In America, historically, the churches that just sprung up overnight and and kind of took over were apocalyptic in nature. They set a date. The world is going to end on such and such a date. And so there's this urgency and there's this fear. And so everybody gathers and rallies around that and they have a sense of, sense of meaning and purpose and, and identity with the group because there's this intense thing going on. Or maybe it's about the, not the stick, but the carrot. You know, God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to have these things. And so by coming in here and doing what we do, you will have these things. And so there is that intense circumstance that desire, that need that drives people and they go back to that and they try to recreate that but if that's what you're trying to do then you're completely missing Jesus' point Jesus' point is is that once your theology has become personal once you experience the goodness of God what you realize is that every moment is sacred You don't need to wait for intense moments in order to feel meaning and purpose. You just clear the decks and there it is. You mentally step aside from all that triviality, all of the distractions that are constantly spinning in our heads. And that moment becomes a sacred moment. A moment where you feel that connection. A moment where you see the things that are important in life. We can choose that. We don't have to wait for that. That's what kingdom is. Kingdom is the sense of connection, of community, of safety within relationships, a knowing that somehow things are going to be okay, a meaning and a purpose, a drive and animation, a way of doing things that comes from a a fountain deep inside and is not trying to comply with any institution. This is where Jesus is leading us. We can go there if we're willing to overturn the tables in our own minds and hearts. If we're willing to challenge what we think we know and what we've been taught and see what is really in front of us. I wanted to read one more thing. And it's in your bulletins if you want to take a look and follow along. This is also a little passage from the Fifth Way, but the Chinese philosopher Chuang Su said, The purpose of a fish trap is to catch fish. Once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit. And once the rabbit is caught, the snare is forgotten. The purpose of words is to convey ideas. Once the ideas are grasped, the words are forgotten. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words? He is the one I want to talk to. And then to that I added, the purpose of theology is to catch God, to get us to the point of falling back into his embrace and experiencing who he really is and not who we might imagine him to be. And once God is caught, the theology can be forgotten. Where can I find a person who has forgotten theology? How set is your mind? How certain are you of the details of your theology? And is your certainty just another shield against the fear of really just falling into God's embrace, allowing that to happen and see what happens? Let him change your plans if plans need to be changed. If that's the case, then you still have something to overturn. And hopefully, through everything that we're doing this Lent, you'll find the courage to begin to look at those things that set you in stone, set you apart from God's presence, and go through like Jesus did and leave no table unturned. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for theology and for church and for leadership and for books and scripture and everything that you have given us to help us, to guide us, to put the rails on our way. Help us to use them, but use them as you do. As means to an experience that will show us who you really are. And with that in our pockets, we can move the rest of the way and get the rest of the story. Father, we're just grateful to you for everything that you shower on us, everything that you give us in order to make this journey. Help us to do that more and more each day. Help us to reach out to the people that we need to reach out to in our own powerlessness to make this happen. We want more of you. More of you. However much we think we want, we want more than that. Thank you for being with us every step of the way. Never let us forget, we can only love or do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.